We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians in just a second, uh, but before we turn there, I want, to, I want to kind of conduct an exercise. I don't mean like physical exercise. Uh, I would never advocate for that, but I want to, uh, sort of a mental exercise, right? Uh, for just a second, I, I, w- I want to just ask you a simple question, and I want, you to, I want you to think about your response, but how would you describe yourself? How would you describe yourself? And I know, I mean, I know we're in church, and so there's like kind of a churchy answer that maybe comes to mind right away. Uh, maybe for you the churchy answer is a legit answer. Um, but, but there are all kinds of places where we're being asked to describe ourselves anyway. So maybe you can answer the question just by reading your bio on Facebook or reading your bio on Instagram. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've recently defined yourself in a couple of quick sentences. But I want you to kind of hold that in your head. What, what is it that you would say uh, defines you? What is it you would say makes you who you are? When you introduce yourself to somebody else or if you're we're trying to give somebody a, a quick snapshot of who you are. What, are. what are those things? If you've had to recently prepare a resume or if you're in a position where you're constantly looking at resumes, you know that there is a sort of a, there's kind of a, a pull in preparing a resume to sort of puff things up a little bit, make things look a little bit better than they do. Maybe that's your tendency with an Instagram bio or a LinkedIn bio to kind of swell it a little bit. Um, if you've ever reviewed resumes of people, you're trying to hire somebody, a lot of times those things get blown out of proportion. But what, what is it exactly that defines you? Who exactly are you? How would you describe yourself? And the next question then for the sake of the exercise is to start thinking through, well, well which of those things would you say are permanent? Because a lot of times we define ourselves based on what we do for a living, but, but what happens if you retire from that job? Or what happens if you lose that job? Maybe we define ourselves based on the relationships we have, or maybe on the, the place where we live, or maybe uh, you know, the, the economic status we've currently got. But all, all those things are kind of changeable. In fact, even a resume is sort of rooted in what I did before, you know, you're telling an employer, like, you should hire me because I did all of these things, but what you did in the past is not necessarily going to be indicative of what you do in the future, so how do you define yourself right now, moment by moment? Like, who exactly are you? I remember one of my very first friendships uh, when I was really little, like, this was pre-kindergarten, and you know, when you're little, you just kind of meet everybody, and I get into... Uh, I, I remember this story kind of, but also my mom has told me this story, but I get into this classroom Sunday school thing at church, you know, and I'm meeting all these kids, and my friends, I had a friend named Jason, I had a friend named Mark, I had a friend named Derek, but there was one of the little boys in my Sunday school class uh, that was one of my friends, and his name uh, was Randy Nono, and uh, I don't know if you know, that, that's kind of a tough name, like I don't know where he is today, but I'm guessing that as like a 45, 46-year-old man, like when you meet that, I hope he's a biker, right, because how cool would that be, like to meet a guy and you're like, hey, what's your name, he's like, my name is Randy Nono. Maybe he's a wrestler. I, maybe he could be like a professional wrestler. That'd be wicked, right? So cool. Uh, but at the time, it was kind of a weird name, and I remember coming home from church one week, and uh, my mom's like, oh, what'd you, how was Sunday school? And I'm like, it was fun. I, I got to play with, you know, Derek and Mark and Randy Nono, and she's like, who? And I was like, Randy Nono. And she's like, that's the name of a kid in your class? And I'm like, yeah, there's a, one of the kids, his name is Randy Nono. I met him a couple weeks ago, and every time we talk, he says his name's Randy Nono. And so my mom did a little investigating. She wanted to know if I just was misunderstanding. Well, it turns out the, the, the young man's name uh, when he was born, like his Christian name on the birth certificate is just Randy, which is a perfectly decent name, right? I mean, we got some good Randys around here. Uh, but, but then uh, because in his household what he was constantly hearing was Randy No-No, he just came to be identified that way, right? <laughs> so in his home, his parents were just like anytime there they they was always Randy No-No this and Randy No-No and Randy No-No. And so then when, as like a little guy, he would roll in and, in social situations and be like, nice to meet you. My name's Randy No-No. Uh, and he became defined by something negative. I wonder if there aren't some of you who even for all of your, uh, for all of your attestations that, that your resume sort of defines who you are or what you have or what you've done, 
Or, or I wonder if in some ways some of you are defined by things other people have said about you. And maybe those aren't real positive things. I wonder if there are some people in the room who are defined by the comparison that you make between what you see in the mirror and what you see on movies or television or in magazines, the, the cultural norms. I wonder if in some ways your description of yourself is distorted or, or maybe it's corrupted because of the voices of our culture or the voices of people who've degraded you or people who've repeatedly said no, no to you or what, maybe you need that, I don't know. But what's interesting here in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be in the second half of 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. As we've been studying in an ongoing way, we've got two more weeks in the study after this one. We're at the end of chapter 2. And just as a review, remember that Paul is writing to this young church. He's not there to physically shepherd them day in and day out. And so he's writing them this letter to comfort them in the midst of three overarching issues. In chapter 1, we see him comforting them in regard to the persecution they're facing. As a young church, they're dealing with affliction and persecution. And remember, he affirms for them. Jesus will return. He sees you. He will punish those who are afflicting you, and he will give you rest. So he comforts them with knowing that justice will be done. In the second chapter, and we looked at this last week, he comforts them in the light of false teaching that had crept in. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 2, he says to them, you know, don't let yourself be stirred or alarmed. Don't let yourself be deceived that the day of the Lord has already come. The Lord Jesus will return and he will gather us to himself. He will punish the unrighteous. He will punish those who've loved unrighteousness and have hated the truth. But literally, that gathering of his people can't happen until the things I've already told you will happen occur. The, the man of lawlessness has to arrive and he won't arrive until the restrainer is removed and the day of apostasy has occurred and there's all these things that he lays out in order to give them comfort to say, hey, remember what you've been told. Don't let somebody give you something false. He's comforting them. But I think he also recognizes, and this makes sense because we're human, we understand it as well, that sometimes just sort of understanding a theological truth doesn't necessarily bring immediate comfort. I would guess that there are some of you who walked out of church last week, even though I I affirmed the idea that there are some things in the text that we have to guess about or some things that are kind of ambiguous with regard to the timing on the man of lawlessness or exactly who the restrainer is. There are some things that are ambiguous, but there are some things that are secure and affirmed that Jesus is coming back, that he will dispense justice, that he will draw us to himself. I would guess there's some of you probably went home, maybe you went to lunch, maybe it sort of rattled around in your head the rest of the day thinking, what is that man of lawlessness? Like, who is that? What is that? What's this day of apostasy going to be like? What's this judgment going to be? I think Paul knows that his original audience, this church at Thessalonica that he's writing to, will need to sort of have this comfort that he's pushing toward them kind of doubled down on in some ways. Does that make sense? And so here at the end of chapter two, we see him deliver what is essentially like a mini benediction. He's not done with his letter, but he gives almost like a closing at the end. There's a prayer for the church, and there's also some affirmation of who they are. He gives kind of a list here, reminding them of who they are. And I want to look at it this morning because not only is what he says true about the church at Thessalonica, but it's equally true for the church Fullerton Free sitting on this corner in this time. There are some statements here about followers of Christ that are true across time and space. They're true for us this morning, and they may not be the way you immediately define yourself, and yet if you can redefine, or if the lens can be shifted to where you can start defining yourself the way the scriptures define you, you may find comfort in places that you can't find when you're defining yourself based on your vocation, which can change, or your accomplishments, which may go unnoticed, or your bank account, which may be diminished, or your reputation, which may be marred, right? If your identity is found in those things, those things are all shifting sand. 
There are some things in this text that have to do with who we are and their unchanging things. Let's look at them just sort of systematically as we walk through here. This is picking up in verse 13. He says this in verse 13 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins here by affirming that he feels obligated or duty-bound to thank God for what he sees in them. So the first thing he identifies them as is a source of gratitude because of the goodness of God at work in them. We also saw him do that in the first chapter. Remember we talked about it a little bit that he said, I praise God for what I see in you and I'm telling all the other churches for the way God is moving among you. He repeats that here and he says, I I have to thank God for the ways in which I see him moving among you. So he's affirming to the church at Thessalonica, I see God moving among you. I'm grateful to God for the way in which I see him moving among you. Not only that, he he refers to them twice in this closing section of chapter two as brothers. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. He refers to them as brothers. There is a sense in which even though he's not with them physically, like Paul is writing this from a different city and he's been removed from them for several months, he wants them to remember that they're not alone that they're not isolated, that they're not by themselves, that there is a familial, there's a family connection between followers of Christ. I I know that some of you roll your eyes when I refer to us as family, right? That when I say, hey, you know what, some of your family and some of your guests and we hope that you'll make the transition from guest to family and this will feel like home, there's some of you feel like that's just kind of an obligatory, like, it's just kind of words to say, right? It's just a thing like that a shepherd or a pastor is supposed to do. Can I tell you that that's not like a throwaway line for me. I believe very clearly that God has organized and called his church not to be a business, not to be an organization, not to be a social club, that we are brothers and sisters. That is the relationship we have. That we are family, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, that we are meant to be in this thing together. It's not trite, it's not a throwaway, it's the reality. And in the moments where we're losing sense of who we are, who God created us to be, in those moments where we feel isolated and downtrodden and alone and rejected, there is comfort in remembering that we're not by ourselves. That there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There's no one operating independent, right? That we are family. He looks at them and he says, I thank God for you, brothers. We're family. I might not be there with you, but we are family. It's important for us to remember that part of the way they're identified here is as family. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. After he's admitted that he's thanking God for the goodness he sees God working in them, he calls them brothers. The first characteristic he gives them that defines them is beloved by the Lord. He calls them loved. He says, don't forget trying to comfort you here in the midst of the false teaching, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the idleness, trying to comfort you, and I want you to remember that God loves you. Now again, I kind of feel like when we talk about the love of God, that we all sort of nod at it. If you're not a guest, if you're like a regular part of the family around here, when I say God loves you, you kind of go, yeah, no, duh, move on to something I haven't heard before, right? It just becomes sort of like a baseline for us, almost to the point where we don't hear it. Let me say it again. You and I are beloved by God. Think about what that means. 
The God of the universe who created everything we know, the immutable, infallible, unchanging, omniscient, all-powerful God who created our eyelashes and our elbows, he loves you. And I don't just mean that he loves the earth. I mean, I think sometimes we think about God in terms of like he just loves the planet, right? Like he just, he made the planet and he put some people on it and then from a distance he's like, oh, I love the earth, right? That's not what this is talking about, right? It's not God looking at the planet Earth the way that I looked at hamsters when I was in fourth grade, right? I just, you know, it's not God sort of creating the Earth so he can see if we'll dig tunnels and fight, right? That's why I had hamsters. I just wanted to see if we could get a little conflict going, you know what I'm saying? It's not God's motivation. He loves us. Our God is a God of love, and he doesn't just love you as a member of mankind, although he does that. He loves you. Have you ever thought about like, the weirdness of the fact that the Bible affirms that God knows the number of hair on your head? Have you ever thought, like, why doesn't the creator of all things have better things to do than count hair? Does that seem strange to you? Right? I mean, for me, admittedly, it's easy. He's, he's gotten up to six, and he's done. He's like, you got, there's six. You have six hair, right? Hairs? No, why does it say that? Why does it say that God knows the number of hair on our head? It's not because God is preoccupied with counting hair. It's to demonstrate the fact that God knows you better than you know you. There's not a single person in the room who knows the number of hairs they, ha- they have on their head. Not even me, right? I, can't, I mean, I have, they're really tiny, but I can't count them. God knows you, and he loves you. He reminds this church, brothers, I'm thanking God for you beloved by the Lord, that you are loved, that you were known. I don't know if you, when I asked you a second ago, who are you, you might have said, well, I'm an architect, or I'm a school teacher, or I'm a parent of four, or I've been married for 50 years. There's all kinds of ways we define ourselves. Man, I will tell you the top of the list for a follower of Jesus should be, you wanna know who I am? Beloved by God. That's the starting point. Beloved by God. Get your arms around that. It's a source of comfort that the creator of all things knows you and loves you. Not only that, look at what he says next. He says, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. God chose you, not only beloved, but chosen. Chosen. Remember Jesus himself, when we were studying John, in John 15, 16, remember what Jesus affirms in in verse 16 of chapter 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I think for many of us, we think that this relationship with God is all based on our option. It's kind of like a record contract. I don't know if you've ever had a record contract, but all the options belong to the record company, right? They make all the money, the artist makes nothing. We sort of feel like that's the relationship we have with God, like all the options are ours. I choose to come to church, I choose to sing these songs, I choose to read the Bible or not to read it, and my relationship with God is based on my choice. That isn't what the Bible affirms. What the Bible affirms is that God chose you. In fact, sometimes we think about a relationship with Jesus in terms of like, it almost feels like picking teams for dodgeball, right? Like there's all these religious options and you got Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and all these guys lined up and it's us going like, eh, I don't know, I mean, I don't know. And, and like they're all going like, oh, I really hope Darren picks me, you know? I'm like, eh, I'm gonna go with Jesus. And he's like, yay, wrong picture, right? Wrong picture, what's the picture? The picture of, is of him choosing us and trying to give them comfort in the midst of the false teaching, and trying to give them comfort in the midst of the persecution, he says, I see you, I thank God for you, you are loved by God, and you are chosen by God. How does he know they're chosen? Well, he illustrates that in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 4, he says this, 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he looks at them here in 2 Thessalonians and goes, remember, you're, you're people that are chosen by God, and we know that because when we came to you, he's referring to Acts 17, right, on that missionary journey. When we came to you and we preached the gospel, you didn't receive it like some people giving a speech. You didn't receive it like the words of men. You received it as the very words of God with power by the Holy Spirit and conviction in your inner being. That is proof that God chose you. If you just listened to the gospel and been like, interesting theory and walked away, then we would have questions about whether or not he's chosen you, but we know you're chosen because of the way God moved in you when you heard the gospel proclaimed. He says, we know, brothers, that you're loved, and we know that you're chosen. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, and he didn't just, it's not just chosen versus unchosen, right? This isn't the text about, you know, the people that are chosen or unchosen. He says, we know that you are loved, that you are chosen because he chose you, as the first fruits to be saved. Now, depending on the translation of the Bible you've got, there is a little bit of speculation about the way this gets interpreted. In some of the manuscripts, the phrase that in the ESV is translated, he chose you to be the first fruits. In some of your Bible translations, uh, the manuscript is, uh, in some of the manuscripts, there's one letter missing, and it changes what the word means. And so some of your translations in English may say, he chose you before the beginning of time, or he chose you from the beginning. I actually believe and agree with the translators here who've translated it into English in the ESV that the greater weight of the old manuscripts, the greater weight of the, of the testimony of Paul's writing across the board leads me to believe that this, this interpretation is correct. That what he's saying here is not that you're chosen versus a bunch of people that are unchosen, but what he's saying here is that you've been chosen with a specific purpose. You've been chosen to be the first fruits of those who will be saved. The first fruits of those who will be saved. So what he's saying here is that, yes, he chose you to be saved, but he chose you to be saved as the beginning of a much greater harvest. Let me tell you why that matters. When Paul looks at them and says, you are loved by God, and you were chosen by God to be the first fruits, what he's saying is that it's spectacular that you yourselves are being saved, but that salvation that God is doing in you is meant to reveal Christ to more and more people. It's not meant to be one and done. You are the people who will be saved and nobody else. You are the people who will believe in the gospel and nobody else. What he's saying is, you're the vanguard. You're the precursor. You're the pilot program. You were the ones that God chose. And we see that affirmed in, in the, the writings of Paul. Even in 1 Thessalonians, he says to them, I'm telling all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia about what God did among you. What's the implication? God did this incredible thing with power of the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And, and as the words of God, he, he moved them and chose them in the gospel. He's repeating that story to other people so that they themselves will be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize that the gospel is not just the words of men, is, is actually something to be deeply convicted by. He looks at them and says, listen, let me tell you who you are. You're people who are loved by God. You're people who are chosen by God to be an example to those who will come after you of what salvation is and can be. The first fruit of those who will be saved. The next defining word he uses here is saved. He talks to them about their salvation. And I get that like in religious circles that word has kind of come off the wheels a little bit. You know what I mean? Like when I say that he affirms for them and he affirms for us that part of our identity, if we're followers of Christ, is that we've been saved, it almost feels again like a throwaway word. Because you've heard the old preacher who's like, 
ladies and gentlemen, what you need today more than anything else is to be saved, you know, and you're like, what is, I don't even know what that is, right? Can I, can I tell you, as much as that word may have sort of turned into white noise for you, claim it back, get it back. That word's saved, don't dismiss it. That word is actually the best description of what Jesus does for fallen mankind. We don't wanna throw it away, right? We don't wanna lose it because of overuse or misuse. We wanna remember it. Here's why, because the Bible teaches that mankind is lost and dead in our sin. That we were created with a purpose. We were created to glorify God and to have a relationship with him. That we were built to know him and to love him in every thought and word and deed and attitude. From the ground up, you and I were built to glorify God and to know him. But we've fallen short of that purpose, right? We've fallen short of that goal. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, all of us are sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is our purpose, right? We're built for glory. We're built to worship him. And we've all failed to do that in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. The problem with falling short of our purpose is that that renders us separated from God and spiritually dead. Romans 6.23 says the wages or the consequences of sin or the consequences of failing to do the thing you were built to do is death, spiritual death. Psalms 5 says the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. The idea here is that God is holy and perfect and just and our sin, our failure, our compromise separates us from him and if he's life, to be separated from him is to be rendered spiritually dead, separated from God and I'll tell you, if if our bodies kick it, right? If we get old or we get sick or we die uh, accidentally, our bodies quit, if we're spiritually dead, we will go into eternity fixed in that position, spiritually dead and separated from God forever and ever and ever in a place called hell. People get all fidgety when you start to talk about hell, but I will tell you it's a biblical principle. It's something Jesus himself taught, and it isn't the purpose for which you were created. It's the consequence for a failure to be who we were created to be. God sends his son Jesus. Jesus comes to the earth with a very specific purpose, and his specific purpose is to save us from sin and death. That word saved is important because we are lost without it. Jesus comes to the earth and he lives a perfect life, and by that I I don't just mean that he did good deeds or he gave great speeches or fed the poor. He did those things. But when I say Jesus lived a perfect life, what I mean is he never failed to glorify God in thought, word, deed, or attitude. He is the ultimate example of what mankind was intended to be. He comes and he worships God in every thought and word and deed and attitude and as such, he is an acceptable substitute. Jesus dies on the cross, not because he deserved that, not because he was tricked, not because the, you know, he was bamboozled by Judas or whatever, no, no, no. Jesus went to the cross specifically to take our sin upon himself. Isaiah says the iniquity of us all was placed on him. The sin of us all was rested on Jesus. He was a substitute. We call that substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus died not because he deserved to, but because we deserved to. He died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. He shed his blood on our behalf, and three days later, it's what we celebrate on Easter. We celebrate in a couple of weeks at 606 and 727, right? We celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he has the power to make dead things live, and the Bible teaches that then by his grace and through his death and resurrection, he extends to us that same resurrection life that those who believe in him can be made spiritually alive in the same way that he was made physically alive on that Easter Sunday. What is that all about? Why did I just give you that long explanation? When the Bible says and defines those who are followers of Christ as people who were saved, that's the right word. What does Jesus do for us in the shedding of his blood and his resurrection and his extension of grace? He saves us. 
I don't know how you define yourself. I don't know whether it's vocational or relational or whether it has to do with where you've been or what you've done, but can I tell you the top of the list should be loved and chosen as first fruits, the, the opportunity to be an example as one who was saved. And he tells us how that salvation works as well. Back to Second Thessalonians. He says you were... You were loved and chosen by God. He chose you as first fruits to be saved. Saved what? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's two ways in which the salvation works itself out. Sanctification is a big sort of fancy religious theological word, but it's actually really easy to understand. Our salvation is an ongoing process. So the moment we put our faith in Christ, we fall on our knees before him, we say, will you save me from sin and death? Will you save me? We are, we are justified before God. What that means is that all of our sin is no longer counted against us. It's placed on Christ. But then in an ongoing way, in a perpetual way, we stay on this journey of sanctification, which just means that over time, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. So the course of our lives, we are always being sanctified by God, and all that means is that we're being reshaped and molded into his image. That's ongoing salvation, the now and the not yet. We have been justified. We are being sanctified by the power of his spirit. And one day, he talks about this too, one day when we see Jesus as he is, when he returns to gather us to himself, we will be glorified. So salvation's like three stages, right? There's justified, that's when you put your faith in Christ. Sanctified is this ongoing journey we're in where progressively we're being made more like Jesus. And one day we will be glorified. He looks at them and says, this salvation, you're the first fruits of it. You're meant to be an example to radiate this salvation that other people could see it. And it happens through the sanctification of the Spirit and what? Belief in the truth. Well, belief in the truth is a direct juxtaposition here to what he's just said about those earlier in 2 Thessalonians 2 who will be condemned. Those in 2 Thessalonians 2 who will be condemned on the day of the Lord are those who hated the truth and loved unrighteousness. So here he says, that's not you. Remember who you are. You're not people who hated the truth and loved unrighteousness. You're not those whom God has sent to strong delusion so that they cannot believe. You are those who were chosen by God because you're loved by God to be saved by God through sanctification and belief in the truth. Believers, people who have trusted in what God has said. He goes on to say this in 14. To this he called you. Not only does he say that we're loved and chosen and saved, sanctified, believing, but he says you're called. And, and it's not sequential here, by the way. This, the calling he describes is a calling that happened all the way back in Acts 17, right? He says, to this he called you through our gospel. To this he called you through our gospel. When did they hear the gospel? Well, they heard the gospel when they went on their first missionary journey and they declared it, right? I, I will say this. When you're thinking about being called, all of us who are believers in Jesus have been called. There's a moment where we heard the gospel and the light bulb came on, right? There's a moment where we heard the gospel that Jesus died in our place, that he offers to us resurrection life, and we feel the Father working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and his word to draw us to the Son. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them or unless the Father calls them, right? There may literally be some of you sitting in the room today who never heard why Jesus died on the cross before. I explained it a second ago, but this might be the first time you're hearing what we call the gospel, the good news. And I will tell you that if you're feeling a sense of magnetism, right? If you're feeling a sense of God stirring in you as you go, I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought Jesus was just a good guy who did some good things and got killed by some bad people. I didn't know Jesus came to rescue me. I didn't know Jesus came to save me. If you're waking up to that, right? There's a chance that what's happening in you right here in this place, I've just articulated the gospel to you and what may literally be happening in your hearts and minds as we sit in the room is God the Father calling you to belief in the Son. 
It's a spectacular thing to be called by God. Don't resist it. Don't reject it. Acknowledge it for what it is. If he's drawing you, that's rad. He says, remember who you are. You're loved. You're chosen. You're saved. You're being sanctified. You're believers, right? You, you are called by God. And not only that, verse 14, you were called so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said already the end product of our sanctification is that one day we will be glorified with him. We'll be made like him. But we also join in the glorification of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, which we looked at two weeks ago, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, he will be glorified, but one of the ways in which he is glorified is in us. We will reflect his glory. We will echo and radiate his glory as his, as his redeemed people. He says, so there's a guarantee here. You are not only people who've been loved and chosen and called and redeemed and sanctified, but you will be glorified. There's a promise of glorification. That's who you are. I don't know how you defined yourself at the outset of our service today, but in trying to provoke comfort, peace for the people of God, he says, let me tell you who you are. It's not all this other stuff. It's worth noting in this text that none of the things he affirms about them are things they do. Chosen, loved, called, sanctified, saved, glorified, all of those things, what? Those are all things that are externally being done by God on our behalf. They're things that are being done by God in us and through us, but by no work of our own. They're not our own efforts. It flies in the face of the sort of American ideal that says the way we achieve and accomplish is by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Being the little engine that could and just sort of thinking you can, thinking you can until you get over the hill. That isn't the way it works with God. Who are you? You're not you on your best day. You're not you, uh, you know, when you're working your hardest. You are the work of God. And he says, so what, what do you have to do then? Is there anything to do? Well, yeah, there's something to do. Look at what he says next. He's just affirmed in 2 Thessalonians uh, who you are. Look at, look at what he says in 15 then. He says, so then, in light of this, so then, brothers, there it is again, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What do you have to do? You gotta walk a bunch of old ladies across the street, you gotta memorize a bunch of Bible verses, you gotta do a bunch of Hail Marys and say your confession, you gotta do any of that stuff. No, 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 because look, you are who you are because of God's choice, because of his redeeming work. It isn't about your actions. What do you have to do? Just hold on to that truth, right? Stand firm in that truth. I was, I was reminded of our study in Exodus, now it's been several years ago. But remember when the people of Israel come and they're trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Remember that day? And they're freaking out because like here comes Pharaoh's army to either kill them or put them back into slavery. And the only other way to go is into the water and that, that will mean death for them. And so they're scrambling. And Moses says this to them in Exodus 14, 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you, are, whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. What was required of the people of Israel as they stood on the shores of the Red Sea? Stand still and watch what God will do on your behalf. Where do we find comfort? In remembering who we are in Christ and holding on to that truth. He says, stand firm. Back to 2 Thessalonians. He says, stand firm. This is 15 and hold to the traditions. We want to be really careful here. When he says traditions, he's not talking about man-made traditions. He's not talking about like 
the moment when we all stand up to read the Bible verse or the way we close our services you know, with uh, the pipe organ or whatever. It's not, it's, not, it's not talking about traditions like that. In fact, Jesus is very articulate. He, he minces no words in saying that man-made traditions that become like the ordinances of God are immoral, right, are wicked. So he's not saying, hey, hold on to the, the traditions that you guys have thought up and that you really like and that have become comfortable for you. No, 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 that would be in direct contradiction to the rest of Scripture. What he's saying here is hold on to what has been passed to you, and look at, he gives a very specific context. Hold on to the things, what, that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He says, here's what you need to hold on to, the traditions that came to you in one of two ways, either through hearing the apostolic teaching which Paul did with Silas and Timothy in Acts 17, hold on to the things we taught you with our mouths or the things we wrote you in these letters. What's he saying? That what we hold on to, what we stand firm in, is what we see revealed in the scripture. By the way, you and I, we don't hear apostolic teaching anymore. Apostolic teaching is done in the scripture. It's revealed for us in the scripture. But what I'm doing here this morning, that's not apostolic teaching. My word is not equitable with the word of God. My word is not inspired by God, right? I'm just a dude doing my best, and sometimes I say the wrong word, and you guys laugh at me, right? You know that. What do we hold firm to? Not the teachings of men, not the traditions of men, not the things that make us comfortable. We hold on to what God has said. Now, there are some traditions, ordinances that we hold on to. But there are also just timeless truths, like the fact that you are loved, and like the fact that you were chosen, and like the fact that you were saved and sanctified, and that he will glorify you. Hold on to that, he says. What do you have to do? To be comforted in the midst of false teaching and persecution and idleness, hold on to who you are. And what we've affirmed both through our teaching, and then he prays a benediction for them at the end. Who we are, what we must do, and then last, he says this in a final prayer, verse 16. He says, now... May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. A couple things I want you to see about this closing deal. He not only tells us who we are, he not only tells us and them what to do. Stand firm and hold on to what you've been taught. But the last thing he says is how it will be accomplished. How will that be accomplished? How will we be able to stand firm and hold on to what we've been taught? Here it is. He says, may the Lord Jesus himself and God our Father. It's It's a side note, but it's interesting that Paul here juxtaposes the way that Jesus and the Father are usually talked about. Usually the Father comes first and Jesus comes second. Here Paul puts Jesus first. What's he doing? He's affirming shortly after the resurrection of Christ, it hasn't been that that long, that the church and the apostles believe what we believe, that Jesus is God, very God. That he's not just a human servant, that he's not just a great rabbi, that he is God. He says, may God... And he says, may Jesus himself and God our Father, who, and then by the way, these are singular verbs. So he talks about them as one unit, doing things singularly. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That's something that they did in harmony. There's Trinitarian theology here, right? That the Father and Jesus loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace together. That's a thing they do together. They give us this eternal comfort. What's that eternal comfort? Well, it's a sense of peace and solace 
that we can have this confident expectation, this, this rest in who God has said we are, in who God is, in what God has said he will do, that we can find this eternal comfort and that ultimately that eternal comfort comes through the death and resurrection of Christ. First Peter 1.3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, may Jesus and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through, a good hope through grace, these are things that he did in the past. The death and resurrection of Christ, we have eternal comfort and good hope through grace, not only comfort in the moment, but hope for the future. And where do those things come from? Not through our striving, not through our effort. Where do we get the comfort? Where do we get the hope? Through grace, undeserved, unearned blessing of God. Remember that all of these things, none of them have to do with striving. None of the things that ultimately define us have to do with our efforts. They all have to do with God's efforts on our behalf. And so, if we don't have eternal comfort and good hope through our striving, if we don't have eternal comfort and good hope through our achievements, if the good hope and eternal comfort that we have isn't through our spiritual accomplishments or our knowledgeability or our sacrifice and service, if it's not through what we do, then guess what? We can have hope that that eternal comfort and that good hope will continue into the future and until we are glorified, until Christ returns, it was never based on how good we are or or how much we did, or how well we did it. It was always based on him, and therefore, it will not go away. And so you and I can have this peace. But not only does he say that we've been given this, he says Jesus and the Father gave us eternal comfort and good hope, but then he prays kind of a wish prayer. In Jewish tradition, there's a wish prayer here in 17. He says, may that same God, Jesus and the Father, who loved us, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he, what, comfort you. That's interesting. We have eternal comfort and good hope, so why pray for comfort? Well, there's a reality here that even though we can sort of all say, yeah, we have eternal comfort and good hope through the grace of Jesus, practically speaking, it doesn't always feel like we've got that comfort and that hope, right? It doesn't always feel like we've got the eternal comfort. In fact, there may be some of you in here who were incredibly anxious, fearful, worried, rattled to your core. You've been defined by all kinds of other voices, and so what he says here is, despite the fact that Jesus has already given you eternal comfort and good hope through his grace that won't go away, I'm praying that the same Jesus will comfort you. That's pretty cool. By the way, the first time he says comfort, it's a noun. The second time he says that it's a verb. The first comfort is something you have. The second comfort is something God does. Does that make sense? This same God that gave us the noun comfort, the noun peace, will comfort you. It's like what a mother does for her child. Jesus intimately comes again and again and again to speak over us and to comfort us. He prays that Jesus will comfort your hearts and establish them. This last piece, this establishment, is a turning and a fixing in a set direction for progress. He says, I pray that he will establish your hearts. What's he mean there? That Jesus will comfort you and turn your heart, turn your feet and fix them in the direction of what? Good work and words. Good work in words. We don't do things to achieve status with God. We don't do things to define ourselves. But in response to the fact that he has loved us and chosen us and saved us and is sanctifying us and will glorify us, in response to what he is doing in us, that good grace that gives us hope, we turn our feet by the power of Christ and we fix them in the direction 
of good words and good deeds. We live a life in response. Well, what is that? That's radiating peace. It's not just having peace. It's radiating peace as the first fruits of those who were saved, that the peace we have isn't just something we hold on to, but it's something that we allow to explode out of us into the lives of those around us who have no comfort, who have no hope, that our feet would be turned toward good hope and good works, good words, is us radiating that peace because of our confident expectation, not in what we're capable of, but our confident expectation in who God is and who he has said we are.